Hello, I'm Matthew Burrett. And I'm Taylor Romans, and this is Hard Beeswax, Experiences in Waldorf Education. This week on Hard Beeswax, Matthew and I had the opportunity to speak with Jake Yeager, a Waldorf alumni, Waldorf arts teacher, and software engineer. We are individuals who are part of this global educational movement, and we want to be clear that we are only speaking from our own experiences and from our own impressions. We do not presume to speak for the Waldorf movement as a whole. Welcome, Jake. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is so exciting. I think you were one of the first people who I was like, ah, hard beeswax. (laughs) (laughs) To get your reaction. Yeah. Yeah, that's the quality name. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> we even like have on the table just some some nuggets for, you yes. know, anyone who feels called. Sorry, we didn't. We should mail our guests like a piece of beeswax so they can get the full experience. That's right. <laughs> I'm glad you skipped uh, indigo paint. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the smell. But it was the best color, too. It had like such rich properties. It really was, yeah. It's true. <laughs> Whereas like that, that what was that red? There was the really rich red, and then there was kind of like orange. orangey one? Yeah. It, it, was, it was like weak. It was yeah. like a weak... It, was it just me, or it, it like, it didn't, it paled in comparison? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, uh, the indigo was like, there's no going back. With the reds, you could kind of push it around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, then the indigo was just there. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's great! So when it, so when you heard the title uh, "Hard Beeswax," you know what 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 does that mean for you? <laughs> uh, it kind of evokes a couple of images, like um, you know the, the Waldorf. You get the you're excited to make something, and then oh my gosh, I got this piece of beeswax. I got to warm up and <laughs> get it going, and then I can make my my animal, but it's also got like that, that, uh, 1950s, uh, reporter feel like that's the hard beeswax. <laughs> and that's the hard beeswax of it, folks. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So Jake, since I don't know you as well as Matthew, can you maybe start from the beginning of how you came to be in a Waldorf school? Yeah, um, my uh, parents uh, were definitely not originally in the Waldorf vein, and uh, my mom came to it first way back when we lived in Dallas. And whoa, nice! I'm the oldest of three siblings, and she was a uh, occupational therapist at the time. My dad was writing radio spots for 7-Eleven. So definitely not in the anthroposophical or Waldorf vein at all. But my mom heard about this interesting little Waldorf, uh, interesting kindergarten that was starting up with this weird thing called Waldorf. And uh, so we went there and that's, kind of where it all started for us as a family, the Jaeger family, excuse me. Eventually from that, we, uh, 
my parents got more interested in it and my mom wanted to go take some courses in England at what was then Tobias Art School. And so we all, the whole family, five of us, moved to England and got to go to Michael Hall. Oh, wow. Yeah. And a big kind of a boarding school over there. Um, Went to Michael Hall, had the whole English countryside experience, um, really kind of pastoral, just great memories. Some gnomey country out there. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Just (laughs) massive oak trees. Actually, we lived really close to where A.A. Milne wrote Winnie the Pooh. Oh, nice. Ashdown Forest. So, um. Then we uh, moved from England to Pennsylvania, and I went to Kimberton Waldorf uh, through high school graduation. And then I went off to college in Arizona, and my folks moved to Michigan, and my brother and sister went to the Steiner School in Ann Arbor. Um, and that's where they graduated high school from. And, uh, but yeah, that's kind of. The, the background of the Waldorf upbringing or the Waldorf education that yeah. I experienced. Yeah, nice. Jake and I were almost classmates. I, I visited the class that you were in in first grade, but I actually didn't meet you at that point. I maybe would have stayed if I had, but, uh, yeah. but then I went up to Green Meadow. So, so what... Um what was your impression of it? I mean, was it, it was obviously what you knew as far as your education, how, you know, as, as a kid in the grades, what were you drawn to? Did you like it? Did you protest it? How did you, how did you embrace what you were receiving at a Waldorf school? Yeah. Um, there's an old, I don't know if it's old, but there's a the philosophical axiom that, uh, the last thing a fish will discover is water. <laughs> and, it's, and that's kind of how uh, Waldorf education was for me growing up was, you know, it's just what I did. Yeah. It's just what it was. And um, the only time that I knew that it was something else was interacting with, um, you know, either family, like cousins or kids in the neighborhood or, oh, we had to ride the bus in Pennsylvania and the bus system would would transfer. You had to change buses at this public school and you just got to be up close and personal with, <laughs> <laughs> with a whole different uh, population. Totally. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it... Waldorf was just kind of uh, what I knew and what was normal and natural. So there, there was, it's hard to speak of it being different, you know, I guess that's, that's how I would say it. But um, interacting with other people, I knew that it was, it was something that I liked and something that I wanted and something that um, I, I wanted to be a part of, hmm. which is uh, carried on through adult adulthood, uh, being a Waldorf teacher, and now my kids have gone. Both my kids go to Waldorf, so nice. yeah. 
I have another question. I realize I'm asking so many questions. Go ahead. What, <laughs> how, um, how did you feel about your rhythm? Oh, your rhythm. Yeah. That was like, that was as a young man growing up, it was the easy one to dog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It, it totally is. It's like, it's like the, it, the, the lame joke, but it's so it, easy. It, it, However, I I attribute my uh, love of basketball and lacrosse and being able to see things in space, um, not because of Eurythmy, but it was m- made more visible, I guess, through doing Eurythmy. And like it, moving in space like that, Kind of, I the proprioception, like you kind of get it at that moment. So looking back on it, I, I definitely appreciated it a lot more than at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, what was it like being in at Michael Hall in England, and then being in Kimberton in, in Pennsylvania? Was there differences in the Waldorf your Waldorf experience in England versus the United States? Um, mm, good question. <clears throat> there, there were a lot of similarities, um, because both schools, uh, were kind of in a rural setting. Hmm. So, um, Kimberton was, is attached or right next to a, a big farm and pretty far out in the country for Pennsylvania. Um, Michael Hall had a, a, a lot of land as well, so it was pretty pastoral. Um, but yeah, I guess the main difference was Michael Hall was twice the size. So there was, uh, there was like two, it was double tracked, mm-hmm. like le- legitimately double tracked. Um, and, uh, I, yeah, pretty much the same. Like the high schoolers were were scary in both places. <laughs> uh, did did they like wear ripped clothes and? <laughs> well, yeah, in Pennsylvania for sure is definitely grunge, and then in in England is, the trend was definitely more Euro puffy jacket, yeah. grease hair. Yeah, nice. <laughs> Did you um did you experience your family transitioning from kind of a non-Waldorf family life or culture to a to a more Waldorf, you know, like with the expectation of low lower media or was there anything that you noticed in your family life that changed as you you know took the journey into Waldorf education? Yeah, there was only the one instance where uh there was a, um, you know, the TV went away. <laughs> um, but other than that, um, my mom being occupational therapist, a bit of an artist herself from the beginning, you know, th- things, things in the house were, were, there was a lot of tangible things, a lot of things to play with or do, or not a lot of plastic toys. Oh, I remember 
one year, my grandma got me this mechanical robot, <laughs> which, you know, it was a cool toy and I, I didn't really love it, but I like playing with it. And it like one day it disappeared. <laughs> Did it break? No, it just disappeared and mm. I didn't ask and I never, <laughs> I never went looking for it. But it was, you know, things like that, that years later my parents admitted to or told us about that you know now it's like i don't feel traumatized or i went without all those all those years of missing the simpsons like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i mean now it's like if i want to go binge the simpsons i can actually absolutely do that but it's not something that i feel deprived yeah about. <laughs> yeah so what was your um, what was your experience of your Waldorf class? You know, I know that for so many people, you know, these are it's something more than just being classmates. There's this closeness. There's the time spent together over years. What was your what was mm. maybe the your experience of joining your class at Kimberton? And then how would you characterize your class culturally within the school? Yeah, Um <clears throat> In England, uh, gosh, it was, it was all pretty natural flow of just joining the herd and running around playing four square and kickball. And, but I don't have, I did go back, uh, after graduation and visit, uh, there and met up with some of the people. But I didn't really have that uh, tight of a connection with those folks. Like, I don't stay in contact with any of them. However, when I went to Kimberton and the classmates I went through high school with, um, I'm pretty close with, with a lot of them. Um, I, don't do, I don't do the social media thing, but we, two of my buddies, we have a monthly... Uh, Skype call or whatever. Nice. This past summer, we we got together, and all of our kids are about the same age. So we we went up and had a nice. reunion. Reunion. That's so <laughs> fun. And uh, yeah, all the kids got to run around and meet each other and ask all the stories of what we used to do. <laughs> <laughs> I remember a lot of pranks were were part of your class experience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we there were some jokers for sure. What was the best prank and, you pulled off? Uh man. Our our senior prank day was pretty epic and we got in a lot of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like a good senior play senior prank should result in someone getting in trouble. Unofficially. We, we took all the desks and chairs from the high school down to the gym and we built a pyramid <laughs> with all the desks and chairs okay backstory the the kind of the unspoken tradition of senior prank day at kws and i hope there's no people listening that will take this as a cue <laughs> but the unspoken traditional of senior prank day was to do something that would 
delay the start of school for the other classes for Who as long finals. as possible. Yes. It was like a gift to them. It was like a lasting gift. So, so, and I feel so bad for all the teachers because how much work, now I know how much work they put in <laughs> preparing for that day and they show up and there are zero desks and chairs in the high school. So, yeah, we, we got in a whole bunch of trouble for that. But uh. <laughs> So... Just one thing, my my class was notorious for stealing faculty parking. And so we um, we had the big performing arts center in Austin on the stage and there were these huge double doors in the back. And so we actually we ripped one of the faculty parking signs out of the ground and with sandbags put a faculty parking sign right in the center of the stage and drove someone's car. So it was parked on the stage. <laughs> That's just like, <laughs> like to, no contest. Yeah, just like the ultimate eighteen-year-old. Just you yeah, know, yeah. I am entitled. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I think there was, there might have been in some point where we, some some poor teacher's car that was small enough got lifted and moved. I don't remember. I have a vague memory of that being a fact. Anyway, <laughs> so so what 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 in uh, in Kimberton? What what blocks you know stood out for you that you particularly liked? Mm. Um, we had uh, a zoology um, block at Hermit Island. Oh, I did kind that of a, too. Yeah. Uh, like any of the times that uh, you got to interact with some of the other schools, like, you know, the uh, Christian community camps that we would go to yeah. and uh, basketball, volleyball, those were definitely highlights. Um, I, I have to tell this, jump in and tell the story as you're thinking about this, because Jake was pretty famous because we used to have these really intense basketball tournaments. So Kimberton would come up to Green Meadow. Okay. We'd have high mowing come down um, from from New Hampshire, and one year the kids the 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 kids from Detroit came and just kind of kicked everyone's you know <laughs> rear end. They were a, a really bunch of really good basketball players there. Um, but the one year it was like, was it our senior year, Jake? Maybe you should tell this story. Your, was it senior year with you and Josh Sloan and and like the epic final game where you got hurt? Uh, yeah, I think, th I think that was, that might've been the all-star game. It, I, I, the Waldorf all-star game. That was a thing. Yeah. We had a thing. We had an all-star game and we what? had, but the tournament would end up with the finals. And usually because our gym was so embarrassingly short, like the three point line would hit the center circle. <laughs> On both sides, and no. so you would you would cross, and then there would be like an extra extension. It was really embarrassing. Our gym was so bad. We would go down to Kimberton, and like we couldn't run around the gym because it was like regular size. <laughs> but but okay, so I'll, I'll set this stage, and then Jake, you have to take over the story. But so like, and we would pack probably like two hundred people in the gym that was like I don't know three quarters of a regular sized gym, or maybe yeah. even less. And it would be loud and everybody would be like, you know, Green Meadow, you know, blah, 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 because it's the home field advantage. And Jake, he was like the star basketball player for Kimberton. 
and they were in the, it was either the finals or the R-Star game, but I think it was the finals. So you take, you, you take it away from here, buddy, because I, mean, I was up in the stands watching. I, I was nowhere near the court at that point. Oh, come on, Matthew. Uh, uh, if this is what you're referring to, I, I, was, I was going down. I was on offense. And okay, someone? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Your, and your, also, your, your nickname, though, your nickname, too. Or is that for and, lacrosse was your nickname? Wait, really quick for context. I played basketball. In college, so I, I do know basketball. So okay, <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it was. Uh, I don't know if it was what point in the game it was, but someone puts up a shot, and I'm right next to Sloan, and we both go up, but he had the uh, the inside bounce, so he goes up. I go up, he gets the rebound, and just the way the mechanics of him grabbing the ball and me being in proximity, he hits me in the mouth. But he hits me in the mouth with the bone of his elbow, and my tooth went through my lip. Oh! <laughs> oh no. So I'm, I'm there like, like, oh, I just got hit in the face, and then I realized there's like, blood on the court and it's this tiny court and i'm like what just happened and everyone's cheering and i didn't want to stop playing but i'm like bleeding from the mouth <laughs> and like this would probably never happen uh in these days but one of the moms was a nurse and she brought me into the athletic office and put sutures in my lip <laughs> yes yeah right then and there the game and put a nice pack on it and uh, i think i played the last quarter amazing but, yeah oh my god it was super that intense was, that, that's that court was legendary and as i remember it our year was the last year they played the varsity games in that yeah. gym. they switched the junior varsity with the uh the varsity yeah that one played in Cameron. That was correct. We, we we switched to Kimberton, and then our team like never came close to the finals again. <laughs> That's so cool, though, to have grown up like in proximity to all these other. I mean, in yeah. Texas, our entire league was parochial schools, so oh, yeah. it was yeah. like I would say ninety nine percent of our games we would be out there with teams praying before the game because that was just you know what you did when you went to other schools. Yeah. So and they were always like what are you, the wizard cult school? You know, it was just this complete unknown. It would have been really fun to beat up on some other Waldorf kids. Yeah. I can see that in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. So when, so you had kind of had this Waldorf life, right? Of being in all these different Waldorf schools. When it came to figuring out what came next, what, you know, where did you, where were you drawing your inspirations as far as choosing what to do after high school? What kind of guidance did you get and what it ultimately did you end up doing? Mm. Um, in, in high school, um, I had the desire to get into, uh, uh, I wanted to do something with, with green energy 
I was big into the green, like solar and wind. And so I thought, oh, I want to be an electrical engineer. And my math teacher kindly took me aside and said, maybe let's try for something else. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And so I, I just kind of didn't really have, oh, this is what I know I want to do. Um, but I, I was really into uh, my senior project, which was welding. Oh, yeah. And welding, um, uh, I tried to like get into some kind of welding shop there in Kimberton and couldn't find anything. And so I did auto mechanics, um, which was, it was okay. It wasn't really what I wanted. But I did see in the corner, he had this machine for um, uh, machining brake plates. Uh, The calipers wear down your brake plates, and you have to basically tool them so they're flat again. You take out some kind of uh, issue that's, that's in the plate. And that was fascinating to me. So kind of wherever I went through college, I ended up going to um, Prescott College in Arizona and studied what's called eco-psychology. But always always in the background, I I had something to do with my hands. Um, My my minor was in fine arts, and mainly I did uh, uh, ceramics. Mm. And so... There, there wasn't like a guiding stream. It was like, what is it that I want to do now yeah. or what's interesting or what's presenting itself. And um, <clears throat> I wouldn't call it like uh, aimlessly wandering through my <laughs> vocational career, but <laughs> I, I would, things would present themselves and I would go do it. Um I moved to Colorado with a girlfriend and, oh my gosh, there's a bunch of people doing Strawbale building. Uh, I want to go do that. And then got into Strawbale, got into natural plaster, there's Adobe floors. And then, you you know, because you're doing that, you learn how to build a house from the ground up. And, hey, we need someone to weld this thing together. Oh, I can do that. And so, yeah, it was it was just kind of um, finding what was there, what was interesting, and yeah, I guess that's how I would I would characterize it. Yeah, I I always remember you as being very much working with your hands, and I remember, I mean, I follow to this day a piece of advice that you gave me once, Jake, which was. Um, you know, you tried to always collect skills rather than things throughout your life. And I've, I've held that pretty close to, you know, what, what, what next skill can I learn and collect and stuff like that? Yeah, uh, that still holds true. And I still say that. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you think that the, the seeds of that came from? Because I, I don't think, I think for many people the idea of 
not having a really set path that you're following is is frightening or and and a lot of times i think young people are discouraged because there's mm. this perception that there's uncertainty around that where do you think that got fostered for you um i would say that it's probably 50-50 nature nurture in my case um, I, I was always, out of my three siblings, I was the one um, going out and building the fort, and then my brother would come, or then my sister would come. Um, I, I, I love to go out and be in nature and find things or do things or try to go fishing with <laughs> some stupid little lure that I made and... <laughs> <laughs> you know the i was always kind of like like the the wilderness weird nerdy guy like my my idol my favorite guy in the goonies is the dude with all the like the booby traps and the <laughs> <laughs> yes. the little belt buckle that had the grappling like so um yeah so all those like things how things go together has always interested me and it wasn't like specific things. I've always been interested in how things interact. So, you know, plunk me in a Waldorf school where you, you do everything from scratch right. uh, from the beginning. It's just, you know, gosh, open season. Yeah. <laughs> you go explore. That's yeah, the, the funny the funny uh, thing for people who have kids, you know, you get them this amazing new bike. It's got all the bells and whistles and the tassels and the basket and the the this and the that. And the only thing they want to do is play with the box. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally. Uh, <laughs> or like take it apart. I've got a yeah, 20 month apart. old and it's like the first thing he does is like try to remove the pieces. His favorite thing to do yes. is to watch me build things with blocks and then eventually he just demands it and then disassembles it. And so it's like a race to see yeah. how fast I can build stuff with the blocks. And then he just falls right behind and takes it all apart. Yeah. And he's yeah never happier. My, my daughter, her, one of her daily favorite pastimes was opening up the kitchen cupboards and taking everything out. (laughs) (laughs) Inventory. Anything that was, anything that was stacked, take it apart. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. So, Uh, yeah, that's, I guess my, uh, you know, even to this day with my, my current job, it's, it's all about how, things how things interact how they should interact how they and how they fall apart Hmm. yeah yeah talk talk a little bit jake about you know how you entered into you know waldorf teaching in particular Mm. um my first waldorf teaching experience was well i guess was more like a um a guest block teacher in Kimberden where I, I did a little blacksmithing block. Um, 
gosh. I forget how old I was. But it was it was for the uh the eighth graders. Um and we just did really basic, you know, heat metal hit with hammer kind of stuff. <laughs> Make hook. And, uh, <laughs> watch it bend. Don't burn don't burn your hand. Brush against your synthetic pants and watch them melt. That was a classic. <laughs> like the wind pants. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that was oh, I one one thing that I remember from that block was there was all these chickens running around and they must have been fourth graders were taking care of them and all of a sudden I you know, I was helping these guys get the blacksmithing done and these two little fourth grade girls run up to me with this chicken and they're like, can you help us with the chicken? Something's wrong with the chicken. I'm looking around. I was like, where is your teacher? And of course I didn't say that out loud. You know, you can't, you can't say that to kids. You gotta be the role. So I'm looking at this chicken and this chicken's got uh, a piece of like, uh, shoelace string hanging out of its mouth. Oh no! And I'm like, uh, what do I do? What's going on here? So I take this chicken, and the chicken's looking at me like wide eyed. The kids are looking like, at me wide eyed. <laughs> and so I like start pulling the string out of the chicken's mouth. I I kid you not. The peristalsis of this chicken's throat had swallowed automatically swallowed <laughs> i would say a good 18 inches of shoelace <laughs> like as i pulled it out you know their eyes got wide and my eyes got wide and the chicken's eyes were wide and all of a sudden the string came out and i gave the chicken back to the, the kids and off they ran <laughs> But uh, you know, it's it's things like that that happen as as a teacher where you gotta just kind of go with it and and uh, <laughs> and try and be as you know gentle with the children as possible, but do what you need to do. Um, gosh, that's actually a pretty good metaphor for the rest of my teaching experiences. <laughs> Eventually, I, how did I, how did I get to Santa Fe? Well, Gosh, we, went, when we met back as adults, it was with the rafting program. Yeah, that was right. We started rafting and um, Mary Freitas learned that I did blacksmithing and she, she was like, oh, you should come do something at, uh, in Santa Fe. Where was home yeah, base was for you at the time when you got called for the rafting trip? Uh, I was living in Colorado at that point. And yeah. And I think it was through Carl Johnson. Yeah. Carl the he, connector. He a, yeah. Cougar Carl needed another raft guide. And that's when I met back up with Matthew. And uh, yeah, the rest is history. Pretty much. <laughs> I mean, I think you actually started a year before me because you had the whole bagel, the bagel bite incident 
um, the year <gasps> before right. we actually did the, the class of 2007 together. Ah, uh, that's right. Okay. What's the bagel bite incident? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, the year before I arrived at the Santa Fe Waldorf school, uh, it was the first year that there was an 11th, a 10th grade and 11th grade. And if I remember right, Jake, correct me if I'm wrong, but one class was a lot bigger than the other. Mm -hmm. And so one of them was going on rafting and the other one was kind of doing like a backpacking thing. Yeah, it was all kind of out on the Rio Chama. And I believe they got the food switched around. So the, <laughs> the larger group got the smaller quantity of food oh, and no. the, the, the smaller group got the larger quantity of food. And in that, the, Carl Johnson was very experimental with his food in those <laughs> early days. And he got something called a bagel bite, which you have to explain it, Jake. I actually wasn't there, but it's, it's kind of like... Yeah. A, Is it like a mini pizza, like the frozen things? No, I think, uh, if I remember, they're like little tiny bagels. They were like oh. bagels, but like a bar, like almost like a bagel bar or something. Oh, that's right. Yeah, no, they're uh, like the Aussie Bites. Yeah. They were like the, the super dense grain packed into like, you know, <laughs> one by one square of mouth dry making goodness. <laughs> and we had so many bagel bites. So the food got switched. But so like the, the Jake's group was like living at large. And then the other group was like, where's our bagels? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, my God. I'd, I'd forgotten about that one. Yeah. So. Okay. So. Oh, go. Stories. The, the stories that we could tell as raft guides. Oh, my gosh. Were you there on the, the trip? No, that was Jack Dant who was there with the. When there was like the bug in the kid's ear and the kid's like, hey, there's something funky in my ear. And it was kind of that moment where all the teachers make eye contact of like, is this really happening right now? <laughs> Probably like you wish you had someone, another adult in the room with the chicken where you could be like, am I seriously about to pull this string out of this chicken? <laughs> I think I'm going to pull the string out of the chicken, right? <laughs> well, we probably should tell some of the stories, huh? <laughs> yeah, it, it all goes back to this. You know, when, when you're a student or you're a child, uh, you, you're looking at your teacher as the role model. And that in the Waldorf vein of things, that's what the, your, your grade school teacher is trying to do. Like, you're trying to be the role model of what, uh, what an adult should be. Mm -hmm. You know, in all your actions, you're trying to be uh, fair and equal and kind and all, all that, the rest of that stuff. So when you switch <laughs> and you're no longer the child and you're the adult, you get presented with like the nutso situations, especially like these raft trips where <laughs> you're stuck with, you know, 18 students in a thunderstorm on a river you got to make the call. What do you do? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what was the biggest learning curve for you going from a student receiving a Waldorf education to a teacher or adult figure, authority figure in a Waldorf community giving the education? Mm. Yeah, good one. Um, 
definitely classroom management, um, behavior management, because I was still pretty young uh, when I was a teacher and, you know, in quote unquote shop class or some of these um, guiding experiences, the the bond is really close Mm -hmm. with the participant because you you have to you know trust is so huge um that the easiest way to gain trust is to be kind of at their level mm-hmm. and so uh, there was a, a few incidences where i was like I'm not going to do that again yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> i i can't I can't talk to them or I can't be at their level because that that's when that's when the the troublemakers um not that they take advantage but they are going to do what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. And right. that's ex- explore explore push boundaries. Mm-hmm. Not pay attention, you know. And at the same time I had a young man in blacksmithing class who uh, came in, laid down on the bench, and went to sleep. <laughs> I was presented with the uh, the uh, the choice of do I how do I handle this? Do I wake him up? Do I enforce him to work? But obviously, this dude needed to sleep. If you're sleeping in blacksmithing class on a wooden bench. Yeah. With the sound of the hammers. And stuff. <laughs> I, I made the call to let him sleep. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's so true. Wow. Like all of those, those moments. And I think all of us have in common that we started teaching high schoolers when we were young. And, and mm-hmm. it, it didn't feel like that long ago. Right. Of, of yeah. being that age, and it's, it's, over and over again. It's like how how do I, how do I gain your trust while also keeping professional boundaries and, yeah, being a consistent authority figure who you need me to be, mm-hmm. right, right, yeah, right. And I I think it's it was stated somewhere in the uh, Steiner's indications that. That's kind of how it should be where the working professionals would be teaching the high schoolers or um, the, the people who are in, in the role doing the work uh, are, are, going, are t- doing the teaching to the, the upper grades. Mm-hmm. And then as you move down the grades, the child becomes younger, then you need to have the, the older, yeah. um, more experienced teachers and you know it's it's kind of a blessing that you have these these wise old uh uh teachers coming into the kindergarten and holding that space where they can kind of have the basic daily routine that's very simple very methodical you know all of that and then that's held by these wise old old folks so yeah, it, it's a challenge definitely in the upper grades to to do the, in my experience, to, to do the classroom management, the behavioral management. Yeah. 
I, I'm wondering if um, you could talk a little bit about some of the art, um, you know, metal working projects that you did. And, and I mean, at least in the Santa Fe Walder School, you did a whole bunch of other things with clay and pewter and copper, I remember. And um, could you talk a little bit about the projects that you did with your students and, and what was the you know meaning behind them or what you were what you were trying to teach them? Yeah. Um, uh, it was, it was a little challenging because we didn't have like a proper studio space and the space we did have, um, it was, it was cold <laughs> out there. And, um, yeah, the, the weather in Santa Fe can be hot, but not in the winter. Anyway, I tried to, um, bring the, the students through the spectrum of metals, um, working with both uh, copper, which is more of a flexible metal that can be annealed and then bent into shapes or hammered to make bowls or different vessels, but then soldered together. So it's, it's a system where you're connecting, but it's more like glue where you're putting things together, but it's also very ductile and it's, it kind of really gives that feeling of flexible metal. And then we did a little bit of uh, casting with, with pewter. Um, I tried that a little bit. It, that was a little bit challenging. But again, you're working with metal, but in a totally different form where you have to make the negative hmm. and fill it uh, with a liquid. And then the liquid becomes solid. And then you further refine the surface to, I think we did like spoons or little bits of jewelry. Um, yeah. Thinking back, some of the students that I had, uh, went on to become pretty amazing artists. And I want to congratulate myself on a job well done. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then the, the final step after doing uh, pewter was uh, blacksmithing. And that's when, you know, traditionally in the beginning projects is like you're making a hook or you're, during, you're splitting and making very basic utensils like a fork or whatever but i wanted to <clears throat> i wanted to at that point have seniors make a knife um where you have to first you have to make the shape and then you have to refine that that, that surface and then you have to refine a tool making edge and then there's you know the handle making process that goes into it. So it's, it's, it's actually a very simple primal tool that can be quite complex um, and difficult for some of these folks to finish. Um, but uh, yeah, again, all this, all this work, all this stuff that surrounds this one simple object um, is what I was trying to go for with that that final senior project, and we, there were some pretty nice pieces made, pretty crude, but you know we we did the best we could with the yeah the, the shop we had. Yeah, right. <clears throat> I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about 
I mean, it is the Michaelmas season right now. And, you know, what is it, what yeah. was it like to work with iron and, and with the students and, you know, any, any tie-ins to, to the season of Michaelmas? Yeah. Um, iron is, is pretty magical substance. Um, if you, you know, it surrounds us, it's everywhere. We use it so many different ways, but on our day-to-day usage of iron and steel, you don't really see kind of some of the magic of it. Um, if the magic really comes into play when you apply temperature or you mm. change temperature. Um, and that that's uh, not, not many people know it, but when you heat up uh, steel, you heat up iron to a, a certain uh, temperature, it's about a cherry red, it actually loses its magnetic property. And oh. that's where you can, um, that's when you know your, your metal is hot enough to work is you hold a magnet on a, on a string next to it. And if the magnet doesn't stick, then you can, you can start pounding. Um, you don't do that all the time. That, that's like, you can tell by the color when it gets to a cherry red, then um, the, basically the, the, the molecules have phase changed mm. in such a way they've lo- lost their magnetic property. Um, and that's, you know, showing that to a student for the first time is like, you know, yeah. <laughs> wait, wait, what, what just happened? So, um, the other thing is that, um, iron, the, the more purification that happens with iron, the more ductile and weak it becomes. And in fact, to get it to be steel, you have to add, uh, nickel and carbon and a whole bunch of other things, depending on what you're trying to, to, to produce, to give it more strength. But iron in and of itself is actually, hmm. it. I think it's, the, the feeling I have is it's a little bit closer to more of a water form. It wants to rust really easily. It wants to degrade. It wants to, you know, it wants to find an equilibrium uh the pure it gets and back back in way back time the the thinking was that the more that you you heat the 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 iron ore the more you burn it the harder it gets but actually what they were doing was they were adding carbon which was infusing the 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 iron ore with uh basically uh, carbon to give it structure and give it uh, more uh, mechanical body at a molecular level. So uh, yeah, iron is, it's, it's really an interesting, um, uh, an interesting subject. They, uh, the earliest um, iron weapons or daggers and swords was actually a, 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 like a kingly gift because the only place that they could find iron ore in that quantity was meteors. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. 
So they they would find the remnants of a meteor as like a like an iron ingot, and then they would smelt that into a, a sword. So it's yeah, there's quite a, a, a rich history around that that uh, that metal, and I used to know the percentage of iron in in your bloodstream, but those are kind of yeah <laughs> things I've. Yeah. Lost along the way. <laughs> no, no, but Steiner does talk about iron in the blood and, and sulfur in the blood. Those are like opposite mm-hmm. poles because the sulfur right. was to represent the dragon. Cool. Right. Wow. So, yeah, I, 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 do, I do miss it sometimes, getting in there and, and working with steel. Sometimes I get the, the odd welding job these days, but... Uh, yeah, working with it in like the the raw form of heat and steel and force pounding, shaping it on the anvil. It's really yeah, pretty special. Do you want to talk about like the the two hands, your two hands, and when you do that process? Because I know it's it's kind of dear to your heart. Yeah, so. <clears throat> There are, um, when you're working solo or when you're, when you're, whenever you're working with steel in a blacksmithing situation, there's, there's the whole setup process of preparing the space, uh, preparing the anvil, preparing the fire, preparing the tools, having everything. If you go into a blacksmithy, everything has its place. Everything is organized because you have a very short window of time to operate and everything needs to be planned in advance before you even think about working. Um, so everything, everything is very, very intentional in the blacksmith shop. Part of that is there's, there's two, there's two polar sides to working the single thing in the middle, which is the the tool you're making or the, the implement that you're crafting out of iron. And it can be either two people or it's two parts of your body. And the one part is generally the left is where you use another tool to grasp the the heated iron. And then you maneuver that either on the, the anvil or the jig or however your whatever your application is for shaping. And that there is a, f- a flexibility required in that it's but it's a strong, resolute shaping that you are intentionally holding the piece to become something. And then the other force is more of the right side. Most, you know, if you're left or right-handed, you know, you, you just, just switch it in your mind. <laughs> but for, there's the other side, the counterforce that is um, kind of the, the strength or the, the, the actuating side that does the shaping. And both, both sides require flexibility, but in a different, kind of in a different way. One is a very direct pounding now, 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 where you're, uh, you're asserting a shape. The other one is more of a receptive 
but highly um, a highly intune, attuned shaping where you are trying to push or shape or position the thing to become something. So you're, mm. there's one side is coming down and the other is, is more of a, of a maneuver. So in the, in the gestalt of the blacksmith, you're, you have to hold and balance these two forces of force and reception to shape this, this thing into a new form or into a specific form. And you, you can, you know, if you do team blacksmithing, it even gets into a three-way where there's, there's a, some dude with a sledgehammer and all he's doing is watching where the blacksmith is tapping with his little hammer. This is where I want you to hit. And this dude is bam, bam, as hard as he can right where uh, he's been indicated. And then there's, a, there's another blacksmith who's holding the object with massive tongs, trying to get it and hold it stabilized in, uh, on the work surface. So there's, you know, there's all these different layers. You could extrapolate all kinds of metaphors on top of that, but it's, it's definitely this, this process, uh, you know, just so rich for the, the Michaelmas time of, you know, you have to make these, you have to make these decisions. The decision needs to be made. And then the other side of that is, can I see what's being required of me and can I respond? Yeah. That's really beautiful. Nice. Yeah. I wish you had been my blacksmithing teacher. No offense, Mr. Smith, who was my blacksmithing teacher, but uh, a lot of this, I think, was lost. Well, let's be clear. I did not explain all of this to the students. No, <laughs> but even just the fact that that's what you were holding. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. So and it, it goes back to, you know, you're, you're trying to communicate these things to a teenager who you know, it's like, oh my God, I need to check my Facebook account. Yeah. And when's the class done? Is this going to burn a hole in my pants? <laughs> and you're just trying to like create a space where these observations can be apparent and can be observed. And some students, it's just going to go yeah. past them or they're, they're not going to realize until decades later, oh, I did blacksmithing once. That's yeah. what that's what that feels like. Totally. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you're just planting a lot of seeds that you never see grow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So I also just want to touch on while you were at the Santa Fe school, I heard you were a basketball coach. And I'd love to hear about your experience coaching because I, I uh, coached that team for the last four years, three years. Mm. And um, so I, I would just love to hear about the, uh, the origins of the, the wild wolves or the wolves. The wolves, Waldorf wolves. Yeah. Um, man, it was, it was a lot of fun. And uh, it, 
it could have we could have done a, a lot more but you again as even as a coach you're you have the players who are like all right what's the play i need to know what during practice i got to i got to know what what we're running through so we can get to the championship and then you have the dudes who are like i just want to play ball yeah i just want to be with my friends <laughs> I want to be with my friend. What are you? Why are you yelling at me? <laughs> you're yelling really loud, yeah. dude. You're so not chill right now. <laughs> <laughs> so it it's it's trying to to respond and create a, a season that that you do run plays and you do have set plays and you you, you try and instruct them. This is a full court press that they're doing on us, and this is how we need to break the full court press. Mm-hmm. When we when we ran this in practice, I wasn't kidding. <laughs> 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 and yeah, you know, it's uh, we went to we won our district and we went to state championship, and that was huge for the team that we. Uh, that I had the group of boys that I had at that time. And we got whooped. Oh my God. <laughs> we did really well. Uh, regular season. We went to state for the cha- for our first round championship. We got smoked. Do you remember who you played? <laughs> I don't, but it, it was like Raton oh, yeah, or yeah. some, some like rural school where that's what they did. And Sounds like Cliff. They, yeah, I think it was Cliff. Something. Cliff, yeah. It it was it was a as a team who knew what they were doing. They were obviously from a student body that they could have a selection process, mm-hmm. and they <laughs> came to play. <laughs> and nice. uh, you know, we we were down by like I don't know. 23 points and everyone the stands were just cheering and so loud and my whole team was so dejected and I had to get them up and I said hey guys look at me remember this moment you are going to lose you need to go out there and keep playing yeah you have to go back out and keep playing you can't roll over it doesn't matter what the score score is at this time. Yeah. It's, I mean, I'm your coach. I'm going to be honest with you. We're not going to win this game. We're not going to we're not going to keep going, but remember this moment where you went back on the court and you kept playing. Yeah. That's what's important. Mm-hmm. So that sucked. <laughs> <laughs> but it was I I'm so glad that we we got there and had that that uh opportunity that experience yeah nice very nice yeah so i you know just in the you know in the interest of time and respecting your time i'd love to hear a little bit about what you're doing now what are your current pursuits where has this lifetime of learning and skill acquiring led you and what are you currently (laughs) working on um well in the vein of it, it's really fascinating how my uh, my life has always been about how things go together, and specifically about plastic deformations of solid bodies. 
<laughs> even with even with rafting, you get this, you know, gear boat tanked up with all these, you know, thousands of pounds of food and gear and you have to take it down the river and this river is is going to make you feel very small. Mm-hmm. And, right. and if you don't prepare and <laughs> know what you're doing, you're going to have wet tortillas. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, one of my kind of pet interests was um, earthquakes and seismology and for years i was like oh eclipses cause earthquakes research this data and i'm gonna pull all this stuff from the usgs i'm gonna find the connection there's a very minimal connection to uh earth tides and uh earthquakes even small, like it's negligible for earthquakes and eclipses. Like the data just does not support it. Um, however, researching earthquakes, first I learned how to use spreadsheets. Mm-hmm. Then I learned how to use CSVs. Then I learned how to make a database. And then I learned how to access the database with PHP. And then I learned how to make an application to fetch the data and present me reports. So all of this interest in earthquakes kind of was a uh, self-taught path to being a software engineer. <laughs> yeah, that's how <laughs> it should be done. My... <laughs> and I was talking to a, one of the dads in um, uh, the my daughter's class and he's he was a software engineer and i was what was i doing i was kind of between jobs at the time and he's like oh we're looking for uh junior level junior level engineers you know submit your resume you know see what happens i was like nah it's not gonna happen and so i dillied and i dallied and eventually i like oh whatever i'm just gonna hand in my resume and see what happens then I got the job. It always <laughs> happens like that. <laughs> <laughs> and I got the interview, and I, I distinctly remembered that I am a, in a different level of computer science than <laughs> I've ever been before. And throughout my entire career with my employer, he's he just operates on this whole different plane of analysis and conditional logic if i could just touch the hem of that garment <laughs> <laughs> but uh, i i really enjoy my job because it's it's now a kind of a it is a pure abstraction of physical shapes like mm. in computer jargon it's you're making these objects and you're making these objects interact and you know the computer is going to do exactly what you tell it to do there's no such thing as an error error is an attribute that we humans put onto something something that's unexpected Mm -hmm. and there's error handling but the computer is doing exactly what it's been told to do 
there's it doesn't care. So that in one way that's it's kind of reassuring <laughs> that you can you can rely on the computer to do exactly what it what it's receiving. And then it's your job to go and figure out is that correct or not? Yeah, and am I, I giving say, it the right instructions? Right. Right. Where where is the actual bug? Hmm. You know, is is you know, the button on this page isn't working. You know, is it the actual button or is it somewhere back in the database where the the value hasn't been held properly? So it's you know, that's it's like a 3D Sudoku problem. Hmm. It's really fun. <laughs> <laughs> and you're still researching earthquakes too, right? Yeah, it's it's a little bit on the back burner at the moment because our our company was acquired by a, a larger company. So there's this whole there's a lot of work with integrating the two systems. Hmm. So spare time has been uh, regulated to. Uh, learning Angular. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Well, I, I think we would yeah, be remiss if we didn't spend just five minutes talking, giving our favorite, you know, Cougar Carl stories. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Yes. <clears throat> you did mention tortillas. It's a, that's a classic one. <laughs> yeah. So uh, physics... And computers are very similar in that you cannot argue with physics and computers. <laughs> and in this specific case, uh, the Cougar Carl story, we had a gear boat that was loaded to the gills. Like two I mean, towers of gear. Yeah. It massive. And we we were on a river that technically we didn't really need to rig to flip, but uh, Matthew and I are risk-averse individuals, so <laughs> we had strapped everything uh, properly. And so imagine these two towers of gear on this gear boat, and it's all bundled together really tightly, and Carl is canoeing this uh rafting uh in the the gear seat with the oars yeah he's captain he's, he's going there yeah he, he's going down the river and he's kind of judging and but you know he's got to stand up and look around this gear can't really quite see what's what's coming his way but it was flat water so he wasn't really thinking about it this submerged log <laughs> grabs one side of the gear boat and because this the weight had put this gear boat in the water so deep it caught this log but there was so much water behind it still pushing this gear boat it lifted up the front edge of the gear boat and because the weight was so high yep oh no this boat went over on flat water. It wasn't even like rapids. <laughs> and <laughs> so I, I didn't actually see it happen. Um, this was all like 
uh, forensics going back later, looking at the water. But all of a sudden there's like gear floating down the water. And I'm like <laughs> pulling over to the side and he, he had managed to stay on the boat and pulled a strap that like released all of these gear bags and they were starting to float down and we were trying to yell at him, ah, get the, get the bag, pulling water bottles, these massive water bottles uh, out of the water and the food coolers. And we, <laughs> we got all these food coolers out of the water. Eventually all the gear, most of the gear was, was saved. I think we lost like a life jacket or something. Anyway, Come to find out the coolers are pretty watertight. The dry box is not so watertight. Oh, no. So we, Carl was there, and we're like day two of this five-day trip. So he's, I see him with this open dry box of food, and he's laying out tortillas to dry in the sun. <laughs> yeah, the whole raft. He covered the whole raft of tortillas. With tortillas. <laughs> Have you ever had, like... A kid spill water on their main lesson book and like try and do that with the pages <laughs> the day before it's due. <laughs> That's amazing. Just like, thankfully there was no wind, but yeah, that was that was an epic day. That was an epic day for sure. I think that's one of the beautiful things about wilderness trips is like you can prepare, you can you know do all these things, and yet chaos inevitably strikes. And I think it's. It's so cool for the kids to see that you just figure something out. And it's like watching, you know, adults have to on the spot, you know, come up with a plan. And it's, I don't know, it's great. One of my favorite stories was when we were teaching Jack Dant how to raft for the first time. He, He, Jake and I were longtime guides and then... Jack Dant came on and, you know, he was hanging with us and stuff. And we had gone to, uh, we were on the Rio Chama and and we had done the Dark Canyon hike and we had come back. And I distinctly remember Jake saying, it would be a really good time for lunch. And there was like, yeah, we should have lunch on this beach after, after this hike. And, and then there was a student, um, Asia Sturznickel, who was like, no, no, let's not have lunch. <laughs> Our campsite's just around the corner. Like, let's just go to camp and then have lunch and we can set up and have extra time in camp. And I remember Jake and I looking at each other like, we should have lunch. <laughs> and it was like, okay. You know, then Carl and he was like, okay, I guess we'll go down to camp. And so we launched and a, Jake was in front of me, I was at the very back. Actually, no, I had gone through first in the paddle boat. And then apparently, I didn't witness this part, but a student lost, a student fell out of their ducky and the ducky and this inflatable kayak got wrapped around this big kind of ship's prow of a rock. And and I remember sitting in the paddle boat, like at the bottom of the rapid, waiting for everybody to come through. And then you know, people weren't coming through and I started to get nervous. And then I saw a water bottle yeah. kind of float down and I was getting <laughs> super nervous. And then Carl Johnson, he like walked up very nonchalantly because I was the one who had a wetsuit in my kit. And he kind of nonchalantly said, uh, Matthew, uh, why don't you grab your wetsuit and follow me? And I was like, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> 
And, um, <coughs> excuse me. And so I knew something was up then. And then, so it, so Carl was on one side of the river and Jake, and, um, that was with Chris Ebersole and, um, who else was on your boat at that time? Was it, it might've, I forget who else. So we had, you had another student on that side and Jack Dant was there. And, uh, and so Carl's like, okay, get into your wetsuit and then swim through the rapid and then grab a hold of the, the ducky. inflatable ducky and see if you can pull it off. And I was like, wait a minute, like what? But I was so kind of young and in, like enthusiastic. I was like, okay, sure. So I like put on the wetsuit and like I, I, I started above the rapid and I swam in and it was pretty big water. It was like 5,000 CFS and I grabbed the ducky, but it's like a funnel shape. Like I, I just grabbed it and it slipped right out of my hand. And then I remember just like floating there like, well, that was a dumb idea. And then I heard rope and Jack Dan threw me a rope. And so I got pulled to their side of the, of the, of the shore. And then we, we, we ran lines to the rock. I think we climbed up and I, we attached. It, it was this whole big mess. And I remember the whole time Jake and I looking at each other like, we should have had lunch. We should have eaten lunch. Because <laughs> then everyone's trying to problem solve and be patient while hungry, which yeah. is an absolute disaster. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. That's, yeah. Yeah, that was, um, <clears throat> I think, I think it was Chris Eversall who lost, was it? Because I remember going down through that rapid, and he was stuck on a rock. Yeah, he'd flipped the rock. His ducky wrapped. He was stuck on the rock, and I, I was like, I was in the lane. I couldn't. There was no way for me to get out. And I remember like getting into the eddy of that rock, and like obviously, I was there for him to jump. But he didn't quite get the memo. Like, <laughs> wasn't thinking it all the way through. And I looked at him like, jump. <laughs> <laughs> and so by this time, the raft had like, like drifted away. And Chris was like a soccer player. So he was, he made the jump. But it was like, if it had been anybody else, I would have been stuck on that rock waiting. Yeah. <laughs> that was a little, that was a, one of our crazier, you know, Boat wraps. It's amazing. All right. Well, love you, Carl. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, Jake, any last thoughts you want to share with us? Any any lingering things we didn't ask you or forgot to ask you about? Um, gosh, no, this is this has been really great. I've enjoyed it. Good just to chat and hobnob and. Yeah, this, this has been fun. Great. Yeah. Thanks. Totally. <laughs> well, I just want to, yeah, I just want to appreciate that you came on and talk, you know, talk with us and yeah, help us launch the hard beeswax endeavor. Yeah, it's it's good topic. It's really, I, I think there's going to be uh, a lot of interested people out there. Best of luck. And I look forward to listening to future podcasts. Would you like to be a sponsor on Hard Beeswax? Email us at hardbeeswax at gmail.com. That concludes another episode of Hard Beeswax. Thanks for listening. For episodes and more, please visit our website, hardbeeswax.transistor.fm.